You are listening to a sermon from Jubilee Church in St. Louis. Throughout the month of February, we are celebrating 20 years of community, love, and purpose. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Uh, I want to speak to you this morning uh, from uh, a verse in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Just while you're uh, turning there, if you're going to, um, just to remind you that uh, the Corinthian church was uh, quite a church in terms of the problems it gave to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul started this church. Uh, he would go from city to city, starting new churches. But perhaps the Corinthian church gave him more headaches, as it happens, than many others. And this letter uh, is often answering questions they've raised with him. If you read it right through, there are many issues that they're having to face, uh, many difficulties, many setbacks, uh, and they seem to be preoccupied with stuff that is very distracting away from the centrality of the gospel. And he answers subject after subject after subject going through the letter. And I just love this uh, verse because it's a kind of turning point verse and it, it, it kind of sums up and I'll uh, help hopefully be able to expound it in a moment. So, one, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We celebrate the joy of coming to worship you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see that you're worthy of our worship, of our praise, of our focus being on you, Lord, of our being fascinated with knowing about God. Thank you put that in our hearts that's brought us here. And Father, thank you for a history now of your faithfulness these 20 years. We give you the praise, Lord. And Father, we ask right now, in the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will rest upon us. Come, come, Holy Spirit. Be our teacher. Take the things of Christ, reveal them to us, we pray. Do us good, fortify us, impart your life to us. May what we do here be empowered by you, please, Lord. So we look to you, Lord. We look to you. We pray that your truth do us good. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Corinthian church was easily distracted and I guess was trying to find some significance by researching other things other than the centrality of the cross of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus himself and what he'd done. And so they got preoccupied maybe with, say, uh, early in the letter you'll find, well, I would say, I'm of Paul, I am of Peter, I am of Apollos. Like, if I could only identify with that guy, maybe that will give me some credibility, some significance. I'm, I'm trying to find some significance. Maybe the fact that I can uh, tell you what the wisdom of the philosophers, the current philosophers, I can quote them, I know them, uh, and I'm really not very impressed with the Apostle Paul anymore because, well, I'm kind of getting aloof because I can tell you what the Greek philosophers are saying. And sometimes that they were getting into excitement about spiritual gifts that brought attention to themselves. They were, again, it's kind of trying to find a track through, trying to find a way 
to be significant other than the cross and the work of Jesus so that I can somehow feel I'm making it outside of God's plan. And it's important for us to see, actually, that's relevant today. Because for many of us, we have this battle with relevance. Am I significant? Does my life matter? Would it matter if I wasn't here? Who am I anyway? Does my presence count? That sort of question can come in our minds. And sometimes we live in a kind of celebrity culture. Uh, You know, the uh, Oscars will be coming up soon, and you see these glittering personalities and cameras and smiles and magnificent dress and outfits. And, well, they made it, didn't they? I mean, they've got a life. And I haven't got a life. And we can, we can be misled. And for all sorts of reasons, we feel, I, I, want, I want to count, I want to matter. And of course, it can have one of two different impacts on us. One of them is to say, well, I'm going to improve myself. I'm going to improve my image. I'm going to somehow get out of where I am to gain ground. Maybe if I could get to know that guy who could give me a lift up. Maybe I could get into that club or I could get join that group and I'll get someone will lift me I could improve myself I could I could somehow gain some personal worth or the opposite is when people just think ah I have no worth and that's the kind of vulnerable society we live in it's on all sides people struggling with identity worth what am I doing on the planet why am I here do I count And that leads to the temptation to snatch onto other things. And so Paul has to deal with the issues that they raise. He answers these many questions that they bring to him and covering all sorts of different subjects. And then you come to this tremendous verse. And and it begins with this, Therefore, beloved brothers... Now, I know that the New International Version says, Dear brothers. It kind of loses something of the power of the phrase... You know, we write letters, we say, you know, dear John, dear this, dear that, kind of a bit meaningless. Here, it's actually saying beloved brothers. And, and, it's, and it's using that, that, uh, that Greek word agape, that word full of, full of love, agapito, you're ones who are beloved. And, and I, you're my beloved brother because actually you've been brought into a family of which we are also members of one another. And so my beloved brothers... And it's thrilling to think, where did that first come, that idea of brother? And sometimes usually people use the word brother uh, kind of carelessly. In England, in the trade union movement, people would call one another brother. It doesn't mean much. It's just kind of that's their culture. They call them brothers. When I've been in South Africa, people call one another brother quite often. Uh, you know, forgotten their name. Hello, brother. It's like, uh, just say brother. It doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, but uh, Jesus... When he rose from the dead, I said this amazing thing. Having called, you know, he had followers, he had disciples. And at one time he said to his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. That's amazing, he called me his friend. Wow, I was following him. Now, now he said, I call you friends, that's amazing. But following the resurrection, he said to Mary Magdalene, who was the first one to see him alive from the dead, he said this, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. I go to my father and their father. Go tell my brothers. 
And I mean, that, hey, brothers, this is something breathtaking and amazing. And that's the root of this. When Paul is writing to Christians and saying, now, beloved brothers, it's coming out from this incredible reality that Jesus has made us to be in one family with him in a breathtaking way. Go and tell my brothers. And it's interesting to think of it that when you think of the apostle Peter, for instance, you're coming up to the cross and Jesus is saying, oh, pray with me, you know, pray a lot. I'm, I'm needing to fellowship, come and pray with me. And they fall asleep and they don't, they ignore his request. And, and then the, the heat's turned on Peter and Peter says, I'm not with, I don't even know him. I'm not with him. No, don't, no, don't associate me with him. I'm not with him. I know I've got a similar accent. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And Jesus rises from the dead and says, go tell my brothers. What, you mean they earned the right to be called brother? Not really. Peter was a shambles. Jesus did it all. Jesus made it happen. Jesus did the breakthrough. He entered into our life. He became a human being. He's very God and he's very man. He became the flesh. God became flesh and lived among us. He went down even into death. And then the Bible says, not only does God raise him from the dead, he co-raised us. When Jesus was snatched out of death, somehow, and we don't know really how, he included every believer in that resurrection. We're raised with him to newness of life. We're co-raised, we're co-seated with him on the heavenlies. Jesus did it and included us in. So although Peter and the others failed miserably, Jesus says profoundly, go tell my brothers, I've done it. I've done it. They're brothers with me now. All their guilt is gone. All their shame is gone. All their alienation is gone. They're brothers. Go tell my brothers. It's amazing what Jesus accomplished. That terrific, wonderful thing. And, and, and in action, he goes looking for them. You know, Peter's full of shame. I failed him. I denied him. He went and wet. And Jesus, you know, that wonderful morning. I love those stories, don't you? The resurrection stories. And Peter's gone fishing again, caught nothing. And Jesus calls him. And he's prepared breakfast for him. And the guy's an absolute mess. And Jesus said, no, come on, brother, let's eat some breakfast together. You're into a whole new world now, a new universe that I've opened up, a new creation. And he's the firstborn of many brothers. And so Paul and others open this up more and more. In the letters, they say, now, He's the firstborn. He's bringing many sons to glory. He, he's the firstborn, brother. We're all going to be conformed to the image of this one. We're all going to be like him. That when he appears, we shall be like him. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, we shall be like him. He comes to be glorified in his saints. That's already happened. My brothers. This, so Paul's writing to these Corinthians in all kinds of conditions. And, and he stops you know, right here at this point in the letter. Now, now my beloved brothers, that, you haven't ceased to be phenomenal people. You are brothers with Christ. You are beloved of God because you are in Christ. And so, yeah, I need to answer these questions. I need to sort you out. I need to bring the priorities in the right order. But look, this is who you are. This is who you are. And it's by a gift of God. So we don't have to do anything to become significant. You can't be more significant than a child of God. You can't be more significant than a brother of Jesus. God has done this breathtaking thing for us. He's released us from all other things 
so that we might know this extraordinary new identity. So he's writing to them, and from the beginning he's saying, look, stop striving to find another way through. Don't think, well, if I'm associated with Apollos, or I'm associated with Peter, it's irrelevant. Or I can understand the philosophers more, it's irrelevant. Or I'm super, super gifted with these gifts of the Spirit. These are not the things that make you who you are. You are in Christ, you're a brother. You're beloved. You're one of the family of God. You're going to be presented before him unspeakably glorious. In fact, if if you had time to read right through 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about being sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown just in a physical body, raised a spiritual body. He talks about these extraordinary things that lie ahead for every believer. This magnificent transformation that God's going to do with every one of us. We will appear with him in glory. And we'll be co-heirs with him. It says, if sons, then heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Come and inherit all things. Incredible thing. So Paul is reminding us that this, we have this identity as a gift from God. That's who we are. We're actually brothers. And so, yeah, Paul is saying, you know, my beloved brothers, but they're beloved brothers because they're in this brotherhood that belongs to Christ. And that's the word that he's bringing to my beloved brothers. Not, not churchgoers, not religious followers, but brothers of Jesus. Then he brings this instruction to them. He says, look, be steadfast. So if, if only you could get a hold of who you are. It's not that you have to snatch after this or snatch after this, but make sure you hold firmly to the thing God says is true of you. Be steadfast. Be settled. The word could be translated. Be settled. Be, be still. It's, it's, it's a lovely verse in, in the old psalm. It says, be still and know that I am God. You know, Stop striving. In fact, that says, it says that in the margin of this Bible. Stop striving. It says in some translation, enough. Be still. Enough. Just know I'm God. It's a similar thing. Look, don't have to work at this. You just have to hold your ground. Be steadfast in it. Be, be true to who you are. Don't throw away your confidence. Be steadfast. Then it says, immovable. Let nothing move you. So you'll find that Satan wants to move you off that ground. He wants to push you away from that sense of acceptance, identity. If he can just push you off there. See, some people say, when you pray, it's good to start with confession, people say. You know, it's sort of neat and tidy. Clear the decks, then you can pray. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. He didn't say, now, just confess your sins first. People often say that, confess your sins first. But you've got an enemy. He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters, who accuses us day and night. So you get before God and say, Lord, I'm sorry about this. And then Satan will whisper in your ear, and this, oh yeah, and that too. And what about that? Oh, yeah. And when you did, oh yeah. So, so you start praying becomes a misery because you come before God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a mess. And it's like he gives you a shovel and you dig a big hole and jump in. And if you can get back to ground level again, you think, I had quite a good prayer time. <laughs> but so often praying becomes with condemnation and guilt. It's never meant to be like that. 
Now, if we use the Lord's Prayer as a kind of structure to praying, which I find helpful, you will come to and forgive us our trespasses. It's not that we become indifferent. We will come to things and say, Lord, I'm sorry about that. Of course. But we don't have to be sin-centered. We don't have to be guilt-centered. That's not who we are. That's not where we live. Because the accuser of the brethren will attack you there and tie you in knots. And Paul is saying, no, no, stand your ground. Be immovable. Don't let the enemy shake you. Stand, be strong. You can get similar teaching in Ephesians 6, if you like, where, where Paul says, put, stand firm, put the whole armor of God on. And, and for us to, to grow, beloved, it's, it's not throwing away our confidence or lusting after something else that would give me credibility or significance. It's standing firm in who you are. It's like we've got three massive oak trees in that we've just moved house now. Three very big oak trees in our garden. And I was talking to someone recently. What is an oak tree? Because an oak tree is an acorn that refused to give ground. It stayed strong. It stayed. It stayed steadfast. You've got enough. There's enough in you. You've got a new identity. Don't let it be snatched from you by fear or, or trying to add to it things that are not appropriate. Stand firm. That's what he's saying. Understand who you are and be secure in it. You'll find that some of the great heroes in the Bible, when they were given the task to do, they, were, they were, had real battles to push them off the task. So I, I think of someone like Nehemiah. So Nehemiah had this passion to rebuild the city of God. Now in the Old Testament, the city of God was a literal place. It was Jerusalem where the temple of God was. It was a literal, a literal city which God identified with. But if you read through the Bible, you'll find the, the concept of the city of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the place where God dwells. It's kind of the church of the living God. And Nehemiah longed to get that city back to its initial glory. There's something of the passion that's been in our hearts. When I became a Christian, church looked pretty sad. And to be honest, it still does in a lot of places. Certainly back in the, the UK, you get all kinds of things. That's called church, and that's called church. You think, wow, that doesn't look a bit like church. And Nehemiah, he saw the wreck the city of God was in. And it broke his heart. And he wanted to rebuild the city of God. And there's something like that in our hearts that's why you start, you say, well, let's build the church like it says in the Bible. Let's build in these values that really matter to us. Things that really are the Bible values for the, let's see a church that looks like it's the church. Looks like God's there. Looks like they're the people of God. Let's get a church that looks like God is in the midst. It's a city of God. That's what was gripping Nehemiah. And they tried to stop him. So he traveled to the place and they began to laugh at him. That was the first thing, mockery. Ha! It's as if you, if you try and build that wall, even if a fox ran up, it would all fall down. And people can be like that. I know when I became a Christian, my old friend said, you'll be back with us in a few weeks. This won't last. Come on, don't be a fool. They're just laughing and mocking. My parents were saying, what are you doing? You're losing all your friends. You're becoming religious. He said, Get, getting you unsettled, trying to unsettle. Maybe you have that. Maybe dear friends close to you. Why do you go to church? 
maybe in the workplace. I mean, you're a religious person. You find you get hit, and, and yeah, you're trying to get unsettled. And they tried to unsettle Nehemiah. But he said, no, <laughs> I love it. He said, what are you doing? He said, so his, his answer was just, so we built the wall. I love it. It's just, so he built, we just built the wall. We didn't argue, we just built the wall. And they said, you'll never get it done. So we built the wall. And then they tried to scare him. They said, they're going to come and kill you. And he said, should such a man as I flee? Was it arrogant, such a man as I? No, I think he knew, I'm called, I'm commissioned, I'm not running away from this. See, he was stable. He didn't, he didn't yield ground. Should such a man as I flee? Then they, they attacked his motives. They said, oh, we know what you're after. You want to be the king. You want to be in charge. You've got self. And he, 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 see, people will sometimes attack your motives. You're trying to be a good Christian. Oh, yeah, you're just you're this. Just try and undermine. And he, he wouldn't yield. And, it, and in the end, the building's going up so much, so much, so much. And they said, we better have a discussion with you. Because they realize this is going to get done. Come down. Come down and let's have a debate about it. And he says, no, I'm about a great work. I will not come down. It's like Jesus when they said to him, if you're the son of God, come down. It's like he said, I'm about a great work. I will not come down. Beloved, for us, we need to just be steady. You don't throw away your confidence. You don't say, oh, it's not working out. It's tough. So that's what Paul's saying. You're a beloved son. You're a beloved brother. Jesus said, brother, sister, come on. Stand your ground. What's the next 20 years got for us? We think 20 years back when it was just a little handful in the house. We thank God they stood ground. They stood ground. But what's God got now? As the new generation comes through, what's God got for us? Stand ground. Recognize who you are. Don't give in. What will God do next? There's people in California saying, thank you, for, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. You see, our dear friend from California, thank you for what you've done. Even our brothers from the Ukraine, Andrei Bondarenko, thank you. Hey, in St. Louis, what's that? Hey, no, no, thank you. You're standing. It's helping us. Because you stood your ground. It's a wonderful thing. Nehemiah stood his ground. What about Joseph? He's another wonderful Bible character. God gave him a prophetic vision. He's like a charismatic. He saw a vision. He dreamed a dream. God said to him, you will have authority. Even your brothers will bow down to you. Now he's a bit arrogant. He said to his brothers, you're going to bow down to me. But they turned against him. And they, threw, they had sold him away as a slave. And, and, and the promise is that they're going to bow down. And, and now he's a slave in another country. And then, and then in this home where he's a slave, they lied. And he tried to rape me. I said, lie, it's just not true. He's thrown into prison. It's like it gets worse and worse and worse. And the, what about the promise? You gave me this promise. He, he's in prison. He's miles away. His brothers are in another nation. What's this promise God gave me? I think if I was Joseph, I think, forget the whole deal. This is awful. And then you read this wonderful story that two other guys are thrown into prison with him. And then one morning, one of them says to him, I've just had a dream. I think if I was Joseph, I'd have said, I used to have dreams, forget dreams. <laughs> That's what got me here. I've given up on dreams. God, I used to be a charismatic, forget it. 
He didn't. He said, tell me your dream. I think that is such a victory. Tell me. He still believes in dreams. He stood his ground, dear friends. He kept believing. You still believing? Has God given you promises? God said things to you. God's given you an identity in Christ. Or you think, if only I could do this, I could become something. Hey. If only I could do this, someone maybe get me out of here. Hey. Be firm. Be strong. What God says is true of you. He did. He said, like it looked like every step was taking him further away. You know, he's in a hole in the ground, and he's sold as a slave. That he's in prison. Actually, every step is taking him one more step to the fulfilment of the promise. He becomes prime minister of Egypt. We all know about Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. It's a wonderful story. It's one of the most wonderful stories in the Bible. But it's about a man who refused to give ground. Stand firm, immovable. Let nothing move you. Is that characteristic of you? This Bible says that the unstable man will gain nothing from the Lord. He's like a wind, he's like a wave. God wants us to be stable and secure. It's not asking us to climb great mountains, he's saying, hold on to what I gave you. Hold on to what I've given you. Stand your ground. We shall not be moved. And then we come to this last phrase. It seems like a contrast. Immovable, always abounding. Well, how can you do both of these things? The important thing is this. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a lot in that sentence. Let's look at it. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, it's not abounding so as to become relevant. See, sometimes people get hectic. They do stuff to justify their existence. It's like just trying hard to become relevant. God doesn't want you to do stuff to become relevant. He wants you to do stuff because you are relevant and he's got things for you to do. It takes all the strain. It takes all the, all the striving out of it. It's because of this extraordinary identity you've been given freely as a gift. Because he's given you this freely as a gift, you begin to work that out. The works we do are in the Lord. It's not in my imagination, if only I could do this, maybe I could get a lift up, I could be... No, 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 that's not the point. There are things God's given us to do. Their labor's in the Lord, and they're not in vain. In other words, they're not purposeless. They're not empty. They're things God's given us to do. I had a friend uh, in England who was a dear friend of mine who worked in, in a clinic for thalidomide children. And, and they, would, they would make limbs for children. And uh, he's a beautiful, gifted man. He's got an arts degree and a science degree. And, and, and they were making limbs for children who are born without arms and all these kind of things. Beautiful thing. And then they had top technicians coming in to join the team. Top technicians. But some of them had been top technicians in, in a development of a new aeroplane. And they'd spent years developing this aeroplane. Absolute years. They're so excited working on it. And then the government changed. And the government axed that whole thing. And he said several of these guys had had like breakdowns. Because all their love and energy and excitement and creative skill was snatched from them. It was all in vain. It all came to nothing. It all came to nothing. 
And, and, and they just were broken men. And they had to kind of rediscover themselves a bit and then get into something that they felt, well, this is a bit purposeful. Work that's in vain is crushing. The Bible says this, our work in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's God's God gave it to us. And there is a supernatural, eternal perspective. Paul had a similar awareness. Paul has said this, I, I know I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He says that earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I'm not worthy to be a, an apostle. Because he said two or three things. He said, I was responsible effectively for the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He said, I, I'm just not worthy. I mean, I was there. I was giving assent to the destroying of this wonderful guy. I mean, it's just like his face like an angel. It's like incredible man. And he watched it and he's saying, yeah, kill him, kill him. Uh, and he said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. And yet, but I found grace. I found mercy. Sometimes people have done things and they think, I'm not sure if that's forgivable. I've met Christians who, you get to know them a bit, and you think, they're kind of hectic, there's something about them. And you get to know them a bit and they say, well, there's something in my past. I don't think I could ever be forgiven for that. So they're kind of laboring to overcome the sense of guilt. But Paul says this, no, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I, I, it's like, God's forgiven me. I will walk away from it. Maybe someone here needs to hear that. Beloved, when God's forgiven you, you leave it. And sometimes we put ourselves higher than God. We say, well, God may forgive, but I can't forgive myself. Irrelevant. If God says I forgive, who are you? Who are you? You must walk away. If God says you're forgiven, it's behind. It's, like, it's gone. Paul had a wonderful life and one of the reasons he had a wonderful life he was able to receive the mercy God gave him if you won't receive the mercy it can clog you up carry a lot of baggage you don't need and also Paul could say this he used to say I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews I, you know, I'm, I'm a top echelon guy I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel who was the famous most famous teacher of that age. Like I, I had the best teacher in the nation. I was above my fellows. I excelled. This is the kind of language he speaks of himself. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. It's like, I am the authentic thing. And then he says this, I count all that as trash. It's all nothing. Because I've been given a new identity. I'm in Christ. I'm a beloved brother. So you see, you step away from whether it's arrogance or self-importance because, well, I accumulated all this. He said, no, it's rubbish. I don't, it's irrelevant. Or, or I'm so guilty because I did something that who can be forgiven? No, we walk away from it because Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame. Some of us have been ashamed because of things other people did to you. You carry, you carry shame because stuff was done to you. And you thought, I can never get away from the shame. And God's saying, leave it behind. You're a new creation. You're a child of God. Walk away from it. And now our labor is in the Lord. It's no longer trying to work to get rid of guilt or get rid of shame. Because God's done the, God's done the amazing thing. We are beloved Brothers, and Paul says, 
So he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. Same phrase as here. Not in vain. Why? Because I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So for Paul, knowing that he's accepted, knowing he's got a new identity, did not make him passive. Didn't make him, okay, well, God's done it. Hallelujah. He said, no, no, God's given me an identity. I want to work hard. This work is not in vain. It's in the Lord. It's, got, it's going to have eternal ramifications. That's what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. It says, well, we will receive rewards for the works God's given us to do. And then it says this extraordinary thing. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for works which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. I mean, he gives you such dignity, he gives us such dignity. That he had some works prepared for us. Things he wanted us to do. He wanted you to raise that child. He wanted you to raise those children. He wanted you to be that wife. He wanted you to be that school teacher. He's got things that he wants us to do that he has planned for us. And we sort of stumble on it, but when he saves us, he's got a plan. He's got works. Things that don't, things that don't justify us. No, he's already done that. He's accepted us. Now, come on, these are things I've got for you. I've got for you. I had no idea I was a backslidden Christian when God dealt with me one Sunday. He said, I want your life. I was messing around with all kinds of sin. I want your life. He snatched me out of it. I had no idea he had an adventure for me. I was just a pathetic backslider. And he had an adventure for me. Works planned beforehand. So Paul says, come on, abounding. We don't get passive because, well, hallelujah, I'm a brother of Jesus anyway. No, no, because he's done this, I'm going to be steadfast. Will you hold your ground? You're being tempted to, ah, I don't know, this might be my last Sunday. People do that. I think I'll go one last Sunday, I'm giving it up. I can't keep it up anyway. It's too hard. No, no, hold your ground. Be steadfast. Don't let anything move you. Hold your ground. And then, hey, get into the works God's given you to do. They're for you, especially for you planned in advance and are not in vain they've got eternal significance hey what an identity God's given us what a future lies before us I found it a great joy myself recently yesterday sitting with I think about a dozen of your younger men across these congregations just listening to their questions and things that make their hearts burn and I thought wow this church looks exciting for the years ahead Let's all, what's God got in the next 20 years for us? What's he wanting to do? We can live with a sense of adventure because God's got plans. He's kind, merciful, and purposeful. And he's brought us in. And ultimately, ultimately, we, can, we will appear with him. We'll inherit everything. As sons come home to our Father in heaven. What a wonderful verse this is. In the midst of a church, hey, it's a church with some problems. Church with some really sad problems. But Paul's saying, hey, listen, listen, beloved brothers. You still are beloved brothers. Come on, enter into everything God has for you. Amen.